Okay, what we were discussing last time was um, the idea of aerial perspective. And what we pointed out was that the only way a person gets awe from looking at the creation and why perhaps I never was able to experience awe from looking at the creation myself is because it was always me looking at the creation. So now when I look at the sun and the moon and the gigantic mountains, so when I'm using myself as the reference point, so then the mountains as they go further and further away from me are small. The stars are tiny. So I think, well, what's it to be in awe of? I'm this gigantic, colossal being, and they these miserable little things disappearing into the horizon. But when you're close enough, you see that they're gigantic, even from your own perspective. You're right, but you don't get that close to them, right? You don't get that close to them. In Arizona. Oh, it could be. In Arizona, you touch the stars. I never f- uh, <laughs> no, forgot about that. No, not the stars. I forgot about that. So, so would you just to, just to give you? Hi, <laughs> Dad. We'd just like to welcome Daniel Sass, a new a new entry into into the show, and I think uh, and uh, he's here from Australia. Which ah, is good awesome. because I haven't had anyone from Australia to pick yeah, on. Yeah, I haven't heard that accent. Yeah, it's, it's been away. So we generally like we've got Baruch Hashem, we've got one Brit, we've got we've got unfortunately way too many Americans, um, <laughs> two one German, two South Africans, German and then we've got Devin, who's a he's a creature from outer space. Oh, yeah, one Arizona. Amazing. <laughs> I don't describe to nationalism. Yes, he's 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 being South African. He's not nationalistic in the slightest bit. In fact, he he, he even he even counters the notion that thing as, as as a nation, going for the global strategy of ultimate ultimate unity. In the age of Aquarius. <laughs> so so this is going to be a little bit disconcerting coming to the share, like when you're still kind of like trying to get your bearings. Um, the focus of the share is it's quite as you can see from the the the, the members quite eclectic, and the, 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 overall, the overall goal is to kind of deal with each and every person in the Shia's issues. Um, the way it comes about is through snide remarks and general humorous comments. Uh, that's why that's where actually we, we had to stop. We had to stop doing that to Spaz because he's getting too offended. He's got an anger issue. So we stopped because uh, he couldn't cope with it. But in general... I don't have an anger issue. <laughs> it brought out the anger issue so that we can deal with it. <laughs> and uh, the <laughs> present topic we're dealing with, the present topic we're dealing with, is trying to escape from this. Script. <laughs> <laughs> are, you, are you mark? Are you mocking your teacher? <laughs> no. I was just wondering what. what, like what, what the meaning of that it's word like was. when you combine escape and escape, it's like that kind of thing. Would you? Uh, <laughs> we're trying to escape. Escape actually, it's it's unfortunate. Americans <laughs> don't know, don't know big words, so that's not going <laughs> to help them. They can't even spell colour, nevertheless. Um, but, but South Africans definitely can. Certainly can, yes. South Africans know lots of big oh, words. They know words like apartheid. Yeah. So <laughs> um, in order to escape, which is, which is a fascinating word, it's actually an etymological combination <laughs> of the two words of escape and scrape, and it means to get out of something quickly and have a close scrape. How do you scrape? So what we're trying to do now is we're trying to yeah we're trying to scrape. There is, but we'll talk about we're trying to scrape our narrow narrow perception of of, of life. Now, a, as you know, 
all of us in this room, I, I asked them openly and they, they agreed, we're completely, completely self, self-involved. So in other words, to the degree that I personally, who, who previous to this year, I thought I was spiritually holding somewhere, and after coming into contact with these, these giants of spirit, uh, actually, I, I've, been, I've been dwarfed. I really have. I really have. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a spiritual miscreant. Elf. Yeah. Elf. <laughs> Dwarf. Dwarf, elf. Yeah. No, elf, no. Because you've got some magical powers. Elf, 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 elf. Yeah. Okay. Right. So, so what you're trying to do is trying to get this perspective of what's called spatial orientation. That when I'm in this room, my default setting is that my, the, the space I occupy is the dominant space in the room and everyone else is seeing my perspective. So the truth is, when I look at everyone around me, as they get further away, they become smaller and smaller until I'm engulfed by my own being almost entirely in my life and it's very difficult for me to see and perceive the needs and the perspectives of others. So one of the first ways of tra- transitioning to that perspective is simply to be Orientate yourself from an objective point of view in space and realize that just as you, as I see you from my perspective, you see me from your perspective. And the truth is, if I look at Nelson's feet in the back of the classroom, so when he looks at me, I have to perceive that through his eyes, I look as small as he looks because he's further away. We then tie this into the Rambam. The Rambam says that a person comes to the awe of Hashem through looking at the creation. And I said, many times I've stared at the stars and I've never felt a sense of awe. And the problem is, because when I looked at the stars, it was me looking at the stars. In that relationship, the stars are small and I'm big. But if we actually flip it, and we imagine the stars looking at me, so then I disintegrate into mummish nothingness. And the way we did this was through a process, which I think Devin enjoyed, had he had been here, and that was that we looked at ourselves from an aerial perspective. So imagine looking at yourself from 10 feet above. And you're seeing yourself and you're seeing the, the room and then you go 100 feet above. Now what happens as you go higher? Two things happen. The first thing that happens is what, Devin? Second thing that happens, Jeremy, is? Thank you, Jeremy. You see more. You see more. Um, in other words, the further, as you get smaller, as you get smaller, you see a much greater, broader context of where you are. And then you suddenly realize that when you're 100 feet up, that it's not just, you're not dominating the world. There's actually probably in your immediate surroundings there's, there's another two, three, four hundred people. Now in the context of those four hundred people, you aren't that big. When you go even higher, you're one amongst thousands. When you go even higher, there's this gigantic landmass and there's literally millions of people. Amongst those millions of people, you're a tiny little spot. When you go even higher and you hit the stars, you just can't even see yourself because you just blended into the mass of the earth. So when a person realizes that that way, so then you have a sense of how tiny you are and how awesome the creation is. You can do this perspective not only in space, but also in time. If you imagine the generations from the beginning of time until now, so you're just this tiny little speck. Now that brings about an awe, but that's a very dangerous feeling to play around with. Because if a person starts to feel small, so then it can be very disempowering, and you can start to think, well, since I just blend into, into the sand of the earth, I'm but a grain of a grain of dust and therefore I'm nothing and what can I do? And this is where a fascinating Gemara comes into play. It's a Gemara in Megillah Lamad Aleph that the Gemara says almost an absurd description of the Creator Himself and it says mm-hmm. 
In the place where you see the greatness of the Creator, that's where you see His humility. It's written in the, in the Chumash, it's repeated in the Prophets, and it's stated a third time in the writings. And it says, Kul Mokim, wherever you see it, whenever you see the greatness of the Rebishtah, there too, also there, you see, sorry, you see his humility. Now, if it would be Nasan Tzvi that the Gemara wanted to teach me a lesson, that we should learn from the lessons of our Creator, and no matter how high and haughty we are because of our position in life, and even though we are a wealthy, powerful, political persona, the king of the nations, nevertheless, we should show care and concern for the little people that made it all possible. So then it would be sufficient to teach it once, and we learn the lesson, Michael Saposnik. But from the fact that the Gemara says, wherever you see the godness of the Boya Olam, that's where you see his another, wherever the greatness is, that's where the humility is, it means that there must be some level of connection between the two which brings to the fore a difficulty. Hooray, one second, aren't those two things totally and utterly mutually exclusive? The greatness displays the enormity of the Creator, yet humility suggests a lowly sense of being. In fact, the expression for humility, a synonym for it, is known as Ruach Shafala, a lowly spirit. So seemingly, those two dimensions counterposed seem to be exclusive and contradictory and not complementary. Hence, how can the Gemara suggest when you have this, you have that, seemingly that there's some level of causal relationship between the two? It should be that they should be exclusive. And when you have that, you do not have this. When you have the greatness, you don't have the humility. If you have the humility, you don't have the greatness. I'd like to fetch a question for one Jeremy Lerner, if I may. Jeremy. Um, for humility, how would you define humility? Oh, precisely. You'd like to suggest an answer? Could you maybe hold on to it, contain it inside of yourself, and let it grow and develop? While we fetch a kasha from Michael Saposnik. Michael. Um, wasn't this um, completely shown by a person, uh, i.e. Moshe? Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu seems to be our paradigm of what humility, humility is all about, because he's called Onav Mikol Adam. So he was the most humble of men, and the way the Ramban, in his famous letter, defines what humility is, he uses the expression, he says, Every single human being will be greater than you in your eyes. Which seems to describe his ultimate lowliness. So now, how do we perceive Moshe Rabbeinu, who one would have thought was this fearless, courageous leader, he would go to Pharaoh, he would lead the Jews through the most hard and trials, hardest trials and most difficult times, and yet he was on them call Adam. How can it be? So what we need to do is we need to come up with a working model of what Anova is and try to describe how that plays in with Gadlus. Good? I would like to attempt this. Now this is going to be hard because the definition we're going to work with, the definition we're going to work with is going to be somewhat abstract. Please bear with me for an approximately 20 seconds while I go fetch a book.
So now, yes. So now the Gemara, as explained by one of the great commentators, says the following thing. He says, "Abu Rabbi Yechonon, that's the author of this Maimer, the statement, Ba'aloi Marki Anova." He etzem ha Anova is the essence of what greatness is all about. Vehi ha-gedula al kol And it's a greatness which completely rises above all other kinds of greatness. Ad she'ein gedula lamalo Until there is no greatness greater than an onov. Now... That's sorry. Anov is, is a humble person. Anov means humility. Again, hard to translate into. An Ani is a poor person. There is a relationship between Anov and Anius, which we can discuss really at another stage. Maybe poor arrogance and poor haughtiness. So could be. It could be. Let's not let's not shoot it's answers from the hip, not since let's, let's delve in things and, and okay. But I, I appreciate your voluntary offering. It. Moshe Rabbeinu being the most humble person, the reason he was the most humble person is because he was completely mevatel to Ratzon Hashem. So for someone to be humble, you need to be mevatel yourself in a very intrinsic way. That's why you say you see the darkness of the Creator and you also see Zenova. Because when you look at a plant, just a normal plant, it is incredibly, incredibly intricate. Right? The, the, the makings and the design of that plant are incredible. And we can eat that plant. His godless is in his providing for us, which is Zenova. Um, what you said, as per usual, was articulate, but unfortunately nonsensical. Nonsensical. <laughs> also, um, <laughs> what you seem to describe was some level of connection between Chesed mm-hmm. and Anova and Gadlus, and you called Chesed Anova, and therefore you said it's Gadlus. Uh, how do you do that? No, I'm In other words, the desire to provide for another comes from extending a attribute of giving someone even though they don't deserve it in the nicest possible way. Somehow in your mind there's a level of connection between that and humility. Could you please explicate that? I'm saying that there is a, there is a the, 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 the act of creation. Yeah. The incredible goddess of the act of creation is almost vital in that we get benefit from that creation. Which is then? I, I think you you're doing so well with your articulation, and then you put in a, a nonsensical Hebrew word in the middle. I was disappointed. Do you want to construct your sentence perhaps with only English words? Only English words. Try again. Um, the majesty of the creation, which oh. is also indicative of the humility of the creator. Why? Because that's what you said. We well, one second, one second. I don't understand what I said, and you explain to me what I said. Yes. No, no, no. But I'm, I'm, I'm trying to ex- explain what you said. Oh, okay. You so, so don't say what I said. Explain yeah, okay. to me. Okay, fine. Let's start okay. again. Go. So you see the, the majesty. You see the humility of the creator <laughs> in the mere, uh, in the majesty of the creation. Why? Because the the utilitarian nature of the creation is almost mevatel 
sorry, it almost nullifies, almost nullifies the majesty of the creation in that its usefulness is is. If I'm understanding what you're saying, mm. to present it in other words, that the nature of kingship and royalty is to rise above the common folk and the, let's say, using common political parlance, the proletariat. And the nature of the, the, the royal family and royalty in general would be to have their own system of they care about themselves, they live in the palace upon the hill and they have no connection with the commoners. If the king would come down to the level of the common folk, that would be viewed as a demonstration of a humble act on his part because he took this greatness, this loftiness and he brought it down to a level where the common folk would dwell with him and be accessible. And if he went even lower and shared of his riches with them, that would be the ultimate act of humility. Hence, the creator that creates this magnificent, beautiful world, were he not to have been a humble individual, he would have barred access to us, the common creations, to partake of that incredible, majestic show. Since he allows us, nay, encourages us to do so, this suggests an element of greatness which is suffused with humility. If you want to take the classic parable of the sages of blessed memory, of, of comparing the, the supernal one, <laughs> he, uh, comparing the supernal mm. one, blessed is he, to a, a, a king of flesh and blood, Right, the king of flesh and blood is is oft um, it is oft his want to create large monuments to glorify himself. Right, the supernal one does not do this because the monuments that he creates are not only accessible to the peasantry, so to say. I don't think the proletariat is the correct term. I agree. Um, I was a mistake. Yeah. Yes, the peasantry. So it was a Not only is it is it accessible. Was it a scrape? Not only yeah, is it, it accessible to the peasantry, but it is the mechanism whereby the peasantry is sustained. No one is sustained through the um, through the monuments that um, say like the. Colossus if I can, if I maybe, if I can, if I can take objection to your presentation, okay. um, I feel that the use of your description of these royal monuments which you seem to mm. feel is the focal point of kingship to be highly distorted surely the king even though he is in a majestic position but in his role as a monarch he does have a connection to the common folk in as much as they are his subjects and it is upon him to care for them the point i was trying to illustrate which i felt would have been the great point had you said it and it would have been a great point to your credit was that he could feed them potatoes or caviar if he chooses to feed them caviar, so then he's humbled himself to come down to them and share of his wealth with them, that act simultaneously shows incredible understanding and empathy, but also humility. But a king of flesh and blood, his main prerogative yes. is to yes. obtain um, utilization from the subjects. Whereas with the It depends if you are focusing on a benevolent despot or a self-serving monarch. The truth is, the reason why one of the um, phrases of one of the pronouns used by the king is what we call the royal plural we the king is <coughs> to indicate that the king is the nation and the nation is the king yeah, to so indicate that the, the divine will is with the king so he can do whatever he wants the royal we is me and God I don't want to project your political issues about monarchy onto this conversation <laughs> sir divine right to rule 
Again, don't you making Jen- Jenkins nervous? So, <laughs> we won't so, so, so to just maybe sum up what what Dev said in in a more in a more understandable phraseology, what what Dev wants to say is that that Hakadosh Baruch Hu, by the fact that he allows us to be servants or uh, subjects in this world, is in itself an act of humility. Um, what I'd like to do is, is take that rather primitive idea and make it far more sophisticated. In fact, say something totally different. Um, <laughs> Pekitza, Pekitza, says the um, Sefer. The in, so now, that if Anava is the Gedula of all Gedulas, it's the greatest greatness of all greatnesses, why is it so? And but he says, it has to be this way, because Otherwise it wouldn't be that whenever you find the Gedula, you'd find the Nova. If it wouldn't be that the two are inextricably linked, when you find the gedula, you wouldn't always find another. But since when you do find gedula, you always find another. It must be that another has a connection to gedula, and therefore, when I say that this is the greatest gedula of all gedulas, it's supported by the fact that the Gemara makes association on a consistent basis between the two. Good, Alex. So let's go into his explanation. And now this is a crucial point which requires explanation. Kibal ha'anova. A person who is an Anova is not bound and is not limited at all. This indicates what the nature of a bound Anova is. A person who is a humble mensch, he is simple and simplicity is a contradiction to the notion of boundaries and parameters. Let me explain to you briefly the difference between a simple compound and a complex compound. A simple compound means there's only one. It's not made up of many, many different parts. Complexity means more and more parts to the whole. Simplicity means less parts to the whole or one part to the whole. So the distinction between simplicity and complexity is the amount of parts. Every time you introduce a new part into the whole, what you're doing is you're drawing a line and you're making a boundary that this is this part is distinct from that part, which is distinct from that part, which is distinct from that point. So God is the ultimate simplicity. There's no complexity. That's one of our mo- most most basic credence of our faith. Credence? Credence? Mm-hmm. Credence. 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 Of our faith is that is one. He's the ultimate. There's no there's no complexity to his being. He's the ultimate simplicity. Now, just let me develop the thought a little bit further, Jeremy, before you interject. Well done. You can lower your hand and I will still remain in my consciousness that you did want to ask a question. Thank you, sir. So, Bekitza, Bekitza, let's work this out. And this is going to be like a theme running through that the more boundaries a person sets up for himself, the smaller he is. Because a boundary means that my being extends this far but no further. The less boundaries there are, the greater a person is. The more the more he's the more he can spread out. In a simple analogy, if a person owns a very small plot which has very tight boundaries, so he has a small plot. If you take away the boundaries and he owes the entire continent, so he has a very large plot. 
the less boundaries there are, the bigger the space that it contains. The more boundaries there are, the less the space it contains. So ironically, size is not a function of sounds gr- sounds sounds mutually co- greatness is not a function of no boundaries, it's a function of creating boundaries. A mountain ultimately has a top, it has a summit. And that summit defines a point where it stops. As long as there's a, there's a line delineating the boundary, so there's a limit to the greatness and the point to which it can expand to. If it would be possible to have a being that there would never be a point where you drew a line, you'd meet the greatest thing that ever was. Allow me to just take this idea a little bit further before we allow for questions. Who is bigger? Bringing it down to the realm of humanity. A person that is arrogant in that he compares himself to those around him and he says, he may be clever, but I'm cleverer than him. So what he's doing is, he's putting a cap on his mental abilities by saying, he has a certain amount of mental abilities, mine exceed his, but they're not unlimited. So when he defines the boundaries of his being, his greatness becomes his smallness. Whereas the Anov, the humble person, defies the notion of making a boundary. Now I don't understand, but surely as physical beings we are limited. There's a given boundary to our physical bodies. Even our emotional and intellectual being has its boundaries. My being is not simple but complex. I've got a variety of different midot. And they don't overlap. They have lines drawn around them. When I'm in love, I'm not in the same time in hate with a person. When I'm being kind, I'm not being cruel. When I'm being truthful, I'm not being false. There's defined boundaries to the parameters of how far the meters go. As well as the given notion of even an idea, ideas are expressed by the boundaries that they occupy. So almost everything that typifies me is surrounded by boundaries. So where does our novel come in? And I'm going to break there and have to expand upon it further and fetch a question from Jeremy Lerner. Um, but you can you can be in love and hate at the same time. You, you like you you can you can have things about someone that you love and things about someone that you hate. One can override the other, but there can still be aspects of exactly, both. Exactly, exactly. So surely the emotional, intellectual, and physical side of man decries the idea of another. If another is something which means you are boundless, so surely our entire being for flies in the face of that, okay. right? And question um, one, question two. And you said that. God was simple, and uh, there was only like in that there, there's only one part. But um, the, in, in the Chumash, it says like God's God has like uh, different ways of relating. Sometimes he's angry, sometimes he's kind. How do you resolve that? And Another great question. One, one overrides good, the other. Good, 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 good. Two good questions. Michael Sapoznik. Um, just I don't know, just so I can <laughs> maybe understand the emotional. Uh, are you saying that? Is someone who gets a, a defined plot of land, someone gives it to him, like, these are your boundaries, that is a very, like, you know, it's small, but if you have someone who says, I'm deciding to keep my 
to set up my boundaries here and not there, is that a way of not, bigger? No, it's still boundaries. Jenkins. On one hand, you said that boundaries implies a limitation, so therefore the less boundaries, the greater a person is. Then you said that, ironically, the more boundaries someone has, the greater that they are. And which one is it? Let's be patient. And now we've run out of time. So we'll have to wait for tomorrow. Find the solution.